Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. All right. Hey, everyone. We are back with our guest, John, today. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we'll start off like we always do. Uh, What led you to Pride's Doors? Well, so basically I I got sober a little, a couple years before I got led to Pride's Doors. And uh, I, um, after my third DWI in 2001, I got the nudge from the judge to get into treatment. And so I actually got sober then, uh, stayed sober for about a year with a couple friends and this and that, but I wasn't doing the whole deal. I wasn't getting a sponsor. And so I went back out. And when I went back out, I met somebody and we were together for a while, but he drank as much as I did. Mm -hmm. And it was was a big old mess. And so we ended up getting sober together. He went to Pride. And I, since I had already went to treatment, I was like, I can't like not go to work, you know? So I like white knuckled it and held it together and kind of used him a little bit with pride. So I went through visiting him at pride and through him meeting so many new people at pride, I formed a community as well. We had a community together. We'd go to meetings and whatnot all together. And so uh, pride really introduced me to, you know, that LGBT recovery community. Mm -hmm. So so you didn't go through Pride's program. You um, went through a different program and then kind of used the support systems through Pride to help you stay sober. I did. And it was so different because when I originally went to treatment, um, you know, it was a good treatment and everything, but I went to all non-LGBT meetings, you know, just because I didn't really know. I didn't have any friends that were, you know, whatever. I was out, but I wasn't like out, out where, mm-hmm. you know, I was telling people at my meetings that I was gay. But um, so I'd go to a few meetings and had a few friends, but nothing like when I got into the LGBT community, which was introduced by Pride, going to the Friday night Pride meetings and meeting all of these other people that were in recovery. It was just unbelievable. It was like, I mean, I was in my 30s, mid 30s, I guess, but um, it was like going to high school yet. It was like the way high school should have been, you know, it was so fun. And uh, so that's when I started being able to be myself Mm -hmm. and meet people that were also like me. And uh, so I would fill up my car two, three, four days a week because, of course, a lot of people don't drive in early recovery and just go to meetings. And it really got me out there and got me comfortable with myself, with others. It was really such a miraculous thing. And we would go to... um, of course, the Friday Night Pride was always, and we'd do the Spring Fling. I don't know. I think you guys still do that. And uh, so we had a lot of community based around Pride. And then, of course, you know, I would be, in the early days, I would go to uh, the Gratitude Meeting over on Lake of the Isles, which was grab a dude, and then wait for the druggy buggy to come. And that had my uh, my boyfriend at the time in there. And so we'd meet at the meeting, and um, it was really it was really a good time. We didn't end up, my boyfriend and I didn't end up staying together. We went back and forth for a long time and he didn't, he just couldn't stay clean and sober. And so I just had to like push him aside and keep going my own journey. And uh, it, it worked out. Well, and to your point, I mean, it sounds like you are kind of who you uh, surround yourself with. And so th- if that was how you're able to stay sober is by being around a bunch of other people who are also like you and you know, in recovery, you kind of have to. Yes. Because that obviously proves to be so important in your life. 
Right, exactly. And it made it made all the difference because, you know, like when I was sober for that time before, it was mainly because I was on probation and I'd meet a couple friends, but they were so, we had nothing in common. And we'd see each other just as at meetings. And now I have, I have this group of friends that, you know, I've had for the last 17 years, 17 plus years, you know, uh, and, you know, that have stayed clean and sober too. So it's really was a super big help for me. <clears throat> and just for our listeners, uh, John had mentioned the druggy buggy, which is not, it's just a band that our clients have dubbed the druggy buggy. Yeah. So. It's fun, the little ter- terms, and I love that grab a dude because it was kind of like that. Uh, but we were all doing good and we were staying clean and we were doing our meetings. And But it was fun too because, you know, people would go out with each other and yeah. there'd be gossip and drama. And, you know, so it was fun. Drama in this community? I don't think so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how it did like what activities did you do within the within the community that were different than the activities that you were doing not within the LGBT recovery community? Well, I guess uh, you know the great thing about recovery is that all of a sudden I got a natural high. I was like, you know, which I didn't have before, you know, because I was, I, alcohol was my drug of choice, even though I did a lot of other things with it. Um, I never really had that natural high, I don't think, you know, and after I got into recovery and started working a program of recovery, I got that natural high. So everything was interesting to me. Everything was fun, you know, and, um, you know, we'd go to movies, we would go skiing. I, I bought a boat at three months sober and, and I'd bring people out boating and, you know, we just did all kinds of activities together and uh, it was fun. So, oh, we did sober camping. That was a big one too. And that really helped me stay clean and sober. That was, uh, you know, we'd plan a good six to 10 camping trips every year and it was all sober people. We'd bring newcomers and you really got to know a lot of people that way too. So. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, what it was like for you when you were using um, and kind of touch on a little before uh, kind of your your stint in, in recovery and treatment? Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I... You know, I guess uh, my dad was an alcoholic. My grandparents were both alcoholics. And now thinking, looking back at when I, even when I was a little kid, you know, I just remember being interested in taking sips out of my dad's beer, you know, even at a young age, you know. So I definitely think that's something that's in your genetics. And um, the first time I got drunk, I was 11 years old and it was Easter Sunday. And my my cousin and I sat behind the bar drinking straight vodka and they had to rush us both to the hospital and have our stomachs pumped. And they said we almost died. So I used to be so embarrassed to tell that story. I mean, like it was a family secret for a while, you know, it was just not talked about, you know, and um, but now I can see how, you know, something like that can maybe help others. And um, that's what, you know, I, I should have, I, it shouldn't have taken me until I was in my 30s really to get sober, but that started it out. Like, I, go, I guess even looking that far back, I knew I was like, had an addictive personality and alcohol, alcoholism. That's crazy. Even at a young age, there was so much shame for you behind that. And you didn't want to talk about it. And even into your, you know, 20s and 30s, that shame about, you know, when you were 11, you were a kid, you didn't know, you know, right. what was going on any better. Well, I mean, the fact that, you know, I mean, not to get down on the Catholics, but <laughs> 12 years of Catholic schools and, uh, and um, you know, this was in the 70s and 80s, so things weren't like they are today. I love seeing how things are today, and I'm so happy that young people can, you know, do what they need to do in, in life. But yeah, it was kind of like that, where, you know, my family was very Catholic. It was Easter Sunday, you know, you know, and it was embarrassing, I'm sure, for them. And uh, 
But to me, it was kind of the start of, that was also when I was kind of like, wow, I liked that. Even though I almost died, I loved it. And then through my high school years, you know, drinking, smoking pot, you know, that was just a part of it. And then of course you get into your twenties and you're going to gay bars. That's just a part of that whole community. You know, I think it helped me at the time, you know, be, uh, be comfortable with myself, but then it got to be too much, of course, like a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And what like events or what led you to feel comfortable coming out to, to live who you are authentically? Well, you know, that's it, it did take a while. I was probably 26, 27 when I finally came out. And, um, you know, I'm not sure. I just think that I tried. Like, it's definitely something you're born with because, I mean, I even knew when I was a little kid. You know, I just knew something was up. And, uh, yeah, we all did, right? And um, so... But I think I thought it was a phase. Like I thought, oh, this will go away maybe, you know, and I've dated lots of girls and I have a daughter. And uh, so I was in some serious relationships. And then in my mid to mid twenties, I was kind of like, this isn't what I want. You know, I'm not happy. This isn't. And so that's when I just knew that I had to like, just be myself because I just wasn't that happy. And uh, that, that helped a lot. I think being uh, in my drinking mode at that time probably helped that <laughs> coming out because, you know, you're drinking, you don't care as much. Um, and then I met a lot of friends that way too, going to bars and clubs and stuff. So it was good for a while until it wasn't. And so when you came out, you mentioned your daughter. How was that experience? Because obviously, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, it's already bad. But then when you've lived life as a straight person or, you know, quote unquote straight person, um, it can kind of come. Right, right, yeah. And, uh, you know, she's, um, how old is she now? 34 now. So it was like a non-issue for mm -hmm. sure, you know, cause that, in that age. And then, you know, um, my boyfriend who I referred to earlier that kind of got me into pride, um, he lived, we lived together. And so, you know, I just sat her down one day and I said, you know, he's not just my friend, right? And she was younger, she was like 13 and she was over all the time. And then in her teens ended up moving in with me as well. So, um, so I think that was a non-issue. Me being an alcoholic and an addict was more of an issue with her where I had to come back and make an amends to her about that. Mm -hmm. But it was fine. And it was a non-issue for all of my family too, yeah. which is really nice too, because the, the you know, being they're strict Catholics and uh, my dad's very, was, was very blue collared and you know, that kind of, you know, cars and hunting and this yeah. and that, it was a non-issue, which I'm so grateful for today. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Wow. What really helps our listeners um, are those resources. You know, where did you go after after treatment? Did you do sober housing? Did you do outpatient? Um, what did you do? What were your next steps? Yeah, and that's really good to bring that up, Kaylee, because you know a lot of people think that they can just go to treatment, then do their meetings, and then their life spent. They got the job, they got the car, maybe they have the relationship, and then oh, I don't need meetings anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you see so many people go back out, you know, because of that. And so you know. You know, I don't do two meetings a day like I did when I first got sober. However, I still go to my home. I still have a home group meeting. I still communicate with my sponsor. You know, I still include the steps in my everyday life, you know, because that's how I got sober. I still um, uh, pray every day. You know, I still do all the things I need to do to take care of myself in recovery. I still 
luckily for me, I didn't do sober housing myself, but my sponsor ran a sober house. And uh, so I was part of their community. So I would just get in, you know, on people's tails, you know, and uh, that, that was part of their community. So I got to see how sober housing was so effective with people. And I formed a good friend group there. And then later on, I opened my own sober houses. And so I started with just one and then I worked my job and kind of did both. And now I've got four sober houses over in St. Paul. And so I've been very blessed to be able to do that for a living and that helps me stay sober every day i mean every single day i'm talking to somebody that's new in recovery yeah. and that i'm trying to either help out or get out you know <laughs> so uh so it's been really good that way and um so but i know that I, with that i also need to like take care of myself make sure i'm doing the, the things i need to do to take care of my own recovery as well and so i guess um in the early days of your recovery how many meetings would you say that you went to a week Oh, probably 12, yeah. you know, because there were a lot of days I worked downtown Minneapolis, so I would go on my lunch hour and then I would go in the evening as well. It was kind of my social outlet for mm -hmm. sure. You know, going in the evening, it was fun. Let's go get coffee and go to a meeting, go out to eat after. And then during the day I was, I was so, um, you know, I needed the meeting so bad that I would go to, um, what was the meeting downtown, uh, Oh God, I'm drawing a blank, but it's a common meeting downtown. I'd go on my lunch hour and, um, and that got me through the day. Mm -hmm. I needed it. And uh, it was, it was a good thing for sure. And so I guess, um, you mentioned how you're not no longer doing two meetings a day. So I guess if it's even possible for you, can you kind of, um, give a timeline of like how long you were going to 12 meetings a day? Cause I think people start and they go off to the races and then after about a month, like you said, they fizzle out. So yeah, that's right. They get advice. that pink cloud and mm -hmm. you know, it kind of gradually went down for me. I mean, it's, meetings have always been a part of my community. So I would always have two to three a week that I would be, have staples, you know, and now, you know, I'm married, I've got a busy life. I've got, you know, a couple grandsons I watched during the days, you know, I, you know, so now of course life gets really busy so i have my two meetings a week plus i go to the, like house meetings with the houses that i support too so it kind of gradually happened that way you know your life gets to be so much um but it is a lifelong thing you know going to meetings and uh, taking your care of yourself in this community i have a sponsee that i work with you know doing those types of things it's a lifelong thing and the nice thing about it is that you'll never be lonely You'll never, even if you move to a different city that you don't know anybody there, you find a meeting and then all of a sudden you're there with your people, you know, and uh, it's really a comforting thing to be part of this community. And so when you do move to a new city, what is, where is the first place people should look online or... Yeah, I've got a meeting app right on my phone because I do travel a lot. Uh, we probably go on a trip every month. Yeah. And um, so I've got a little meeting app. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a chair, a fold-up chair is the picture on it. And it's it's you, anything that's close, any meeting that's close you go to. And then any meetings that you recommend in the Twin Cities area for people to go to? Well, you know, through the pandemic, I lost my other home group kind of thing. And then there's been a couple other meetings that haven't been as open. So I found a new home group that I've been going to now for a while about two years and uh i do it on zoom still because the coffee shop we went to isn't open any longer which i love i feel like we got closer on zoom which is odd but you get to see and talk to everybody instead of just your little corner people you know clicks and stuff so um yeah i think uh i i don't necessarily have one to recommend but um yeah i kind of go to my house meetings too so no not at this time <laughs> And then what are some of the challenges? I know we've asked a couple of different people, but having owned or having um, been or owning four silver houses, 
What were some of the challenges during COVID? Well, it was very challenging. I did was able to get everybody the uh, vaccine early because we wow. qualified as group homes, and I get everybody out there. There's a few guys that were reluctant, and I was, and they're like, I don't know what's in that vaccine. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm like. I'm like, well, you know, what about when you're on the street shooting up heroin? Did you know what was in that? You know, <laughs> come on, yeah, <laughs> give me a break. Like, but they're like, oh, but we saw Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so, um, so that, so it has been challenging. I think we only had like one or two cases in all four houses that we knew about. So, um, so we just kept people together. Uh, they, there wasn't anywhere to go, so they weren't really going out anyways. Luckily, the outpatient treatments were all on Zoom. Um, so we didn't have too many challenges. I made sure there was plenty of uh, hand sanitizer. And uh, if somebody did come down with symptoms, we'd try to get them into one room. So I don't know. It was, it was pretty good. It was way better than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be a complete nightmare. Uh, we did go through a couple slow times where I don't think people wanted to get into sober living, where we were down like 20 percent at one point and I was like what's going on here but you know it came back you know unfortunately there's always going to be addicts and alcoholics that need help you know and fortunately we'll be able to provide help so awesome. and is there anything you can say because I think people who are just coming out of treatment especially the first time or who are first new to this recovery life are terrified of sober housing and I'm always like no it's actually a really cool thing like you're with your people you have support like immediately and everybody there understands like Right. Nobody's going to judge you. Is there anything you can say, I guess, Yeah, for say? sure. Oh, my God. It's like I'm obviously an advocate for it because I own them. But, you know, it just there's a little community there. You know, they get to see people right away. The guys always want their own room, you know, but I all my rooms are shared. And I tell them, you know, it's, it's good because you have that one person that you're accountable to. Even though the rest of the house may be doing this or that, you have a roommate. And, and I've seen so many great friendships come about from being a roommate with somebody. And not to mention the fact that that's where you learn to like start making your bed and clean up the kitchen and go to your weekly meeting and have accountability. Like you can you can do things, but text me what you're doing, you know. And uh, so there is. Yeah, it's very comfortable. And guys that come in, I go and sit in on their meetings. They're always they always bring up how grateful they are that they got into this house because sometimes there's a little bit of a demand for it. So um, they're always grateful. I feel like what your story really embodies is just the community. I mean, the um, LGBTQ community that kind of took you in, you know, even though you didn't go through Pride and then the recovery community and finding um, home within your sponsors, Sober Houses. And so people kind of just taking you in and making you part of their family. And so you can go out and create these Sober Houses and take in these other individuals and make them part of your family. And I think that's what makes recovery so cool is it just keeps giving back um, to the next generation of people Definitely. that need help well definitely to that point and not to sound like a broken record because i feel like we talk about this on every single podcast but it's like there's just very few lgbtq specific environments for people to go to you know seven percent of like the population is in the community and so it's obviously hard to find other people who are like you and so we where do we go we go to the places we know where there's going to be people like us right which is strictly bars True. and so there needs to be more lgbtq inclusive places because to your point, I think you're a great example of what can be done when you're around the right people. Exactly. Yep. So true. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was yeah, thank you guys. I'm glad you invited me. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.